what others may think and to wholeheartedly go after the mission. we're going to be looking at this morning is the Ascension, as Dallas mentioned. Uh, just before we do, though, I just wanted to make a short announcement, and that is just regarding Right Now Media. It's a um, uh, library of Christian videos that we have access to as a church uh, through till the end of summer. And if you didn't get an email giving you access for that, you can just click on a link on our website and you can gain access. It allows you to have videos for individual study, for life groups, we're using them for that, and for children's ministries, they can be downloaded onto a tablet, taken it up to a Wi-Fi free zone where you don't have any Wi-Fi, but you could still put kids' videos on there or a phone. And so hopefully you'll find that useful over the next few months and encouraging. All right, so we are going to look at the Ascension this morning. And... Um, it is a part of the continuation of the whole Easter story, but in spite of the fact that we always are very focused on the resurrection, we almost never, I've never heard a sermon on the ascension before. And everybody who asked me uh, hadn't heard it either. So, you know, it's, it's not a very common sermon topic. But as Dallas asked me to preach on this, um, as I was studying it, I noticed there are a lot of balloons. You could say it's almost like the ascension is tied. This event is tied to a lot of different balloons that are very important concepts that are critical for us. And um, so anyways, Dallas was also giving me a hand with, with, with some things in relation to this. And so on Thursday afternoon, I got a phone call saying, hey, can you be at the church on the church steps in five minutes? I'll be driving by. And so Dallas was going to do this drive-by. And um, as he comes by, he comes by in this silver Mazda 3, squeals up to the church steps, rolls down the driver's side door, he's got his shades on, and he tosses out two theological studies books, you know, about this thick on the ascension, and roars off, tires squealing and, and heads off, you know, it's a, it was a drive-by theological book, yeah, book distribution, I guess, and, you know, and, and part of me, you know, I sort of just stood there, sort of, like, just sort of stunned, you know, right, as he, as he squeals off, and um, a little bit the way the disciples also sort of looked stunned when Jesus, Jesus went up, and, but not only that, but I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking, wow, you know, I'd, that would be cool. I would, I would love to be, you know, associate pastor of the Rock Church, maybe TRCYXE on a personalized license plate at the back and wearing shades, you know, uh, just roaring around town and, hey, heard of the Ascension and tossing out theological studies on the Ascension out the driver's side window. And I just thought maybe someday, maybe someday, I could be that cool. What? You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Dallas says, uh, unfortunately, you know, there's only so much he can do with the material he's given to work with, so it might not be a possibility. But um, anyways, that is, the Ascension is like, like in terms of when you see the studies on the Ascension, it is a, it is a topic that just seems to have all these different connections to all these different um, places and extremely important themes. So we're going to be focusing on the passage of Acts 1. Uh, Verses 1 to 11, and I'm going to read that now. Um, Acts 1, starting at verse, uh, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and to teach 
until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Just before we look at this passage, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the joy we can have, and just that... As we worshipped uh, in music this morning, we took joy in you as our king. We took joy in you as the exalted one. And Father, we now as we look at this passage, we take joy in the fact that you were ascended and you went into heaven and you now are at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're thankful for that. And dear Lord, I just pray that you give us wisdom as we look at this. Give us insight. Uh, may your Holy Spirit, who you have promised is on us uh, as we follow you, may, um, may he give us ability to um, see how we can apply this passage to our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Even though this is a uh, deep and weighty topic... I have for you condensed the points to 10 letters. So any of you who have the notes there, um, you notice there's a fill in the blank. The fill in the blank is very long, but the actual answer is very short. And um, so, yeah, so it's only 10 letters long, and it is simply up, back, on, and to. So that's all you have to remember to really grasp the, the center of this particular uh, sermon. Um, so, I'm first going to read for point number one is up, and I just want to read verse nine from this same passage again, and that's the verse we'll focus on for this point. After he, is sa he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So... I think one of the first things that is tied, as we have sung about, one of the themes I, I um, when Amy asked me uh, a couple weeks ago, she asked me, so what, what are you speaking on? I said, oh, because she was going to prepare all the songs. She said, I said, oh, the Ascension. I'm like, yeah. Good luck with that one. I, I, I can't remember one, one song on the Ascension that I could ever think of. Um, but she did an amazing job, and we, we, were, we were, um, got to sing about Jesus as king got to sing about him as exalted. And that is one of the key themes of the ascension. And that's what we look at here. And one of the things that, um, it's sort of a little bit by implication, but if you look at the parable in Luke 19, verses 11 to 15, he talks about a man of noble birth that went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. 
Okay, so he had given those talents, you know, the parable of the talents to his servants, and now he is going away, he's going to be appointed king, and then he's going to return and he's going to claim his rightful kingdom. So really in that parable, we see that part of the ascension is actually going up to heaven and being anointed king. In the same way that David was anointed king, right? But he didn't become king right away. He didn't uh, claim his kingdom right away. He um, was anointed king, and then he returned to reclaim his rightful kingdom or to get his rightful kingdom 15 years later. Um, And in this case, it's, as we know, already more than 2,000 years. So um, it is a, a point of time between when he is appointed king and then when he will be returning. Um, and one of the things it says in that same parable is, is that a certain delegation also said to him, no, we don't want this man as our king, right? And if you remember, um, Pilate said to the Jews, he says, why do you want to crucify your king? And they says, no, we're like loyal, you know, we love Rome and we, uh, Rome is our only, Caesar is our only king. Um, and then Pilate wrote on there, he wrote king of the Jews, and they said, no, 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 th- that, this man is not the king of the Jews, right? So there is this aspect of these people did not want him as our king, but he is, when he ascended, he was um, anointed king. And so part of that is just that aspect of him being king is a critical part of his rule in our lives. And his kingdom really begins with us, right? When Jesus said the kingdom of God is near, part of that I think relates to us acting as loyal subjects of the king, even though the earth is still largely in rebellion to him. Um, One of my favorite books is Lord of the Rings, and in there, there is a guy called Strider. And at first, the hobbits, they're about this this high, they're little people about this high, they assume that he is just this outdoorsman, woodsman, warrior kind of guy, but... As they are with him longer and longer, they begin to realize, no, this is not just Strider. This is Aragorn. He is the king of Gondor, um, even though he doesn't appear with it. And that is what the disciples were like, too, right? The disciples, as they were with Jesus, they began to realize, wow, he is actually the Messiah. He is the king. He is the son of God. And... um, And so that is one of the things that we also see here is this kingship thread. And the whole idea of Jesus' kingship actually is pretty, to me anyways, I love stories and I love intricate plots. And um, I used to get to teach, you know, literature. And in there, you're always talking about the way the plot is increasing in tension. And uh, which, you know... By the way, just as a side, just as a side here, as I was talking with my son this week about Marvel and the metaverse, the meta universe, and you know, just uh, just the fact is that all these difference with the metaverse, what happens is you have all these different universes, and suddenly the tension is all gone, right? Because you can just come back, you know, Thanos snaps his fingers, suddenly it's gone, suddenly everybody's dead, suddenly, wow, everybody's alive again. That's not the way God makes a story. God does a much better job than than Marvel at making a story. Um, And the story that he made in terms of his kingship, in my mind, is really an interesting one, because he gave us kingship of the earth first, right? He said, um, uh, he said, Uh, God blessed them, this is in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature in the ground. I mean, that moves on the ground. And so one of the things is that in, we were given that rulership, okay? We were given rulership of the earth 
God said, and God is someone, he, he loves to share his authority. He loves for us to do stuff with him, okay? And in this case, we see in the New Testament, suddenly Satan is being called the prince of this world. Suddenly he's being, he's saying to Jesus, hey, you know what? Tell you what, I'll give you any of these kingdoms of mine. I can give it to you if you want. And that's what he does in the temptation, right? And Jesus does not correct him and say, no, you're not the prince of this world. And so there is this aspect to which Satan got the kingship. And how did he get it? It seems he probably got it because we sort of bought into his, his lies. We said, we don't want to be on God's team anymore. Through Adam and Eve, we said, we want to be on Satan's team. We want to follow you. We're following your words. Right? And so in some ways, we forfeited what was a, a rulership that was given to us. We forfeited to Satan. And then Jesus is now reclaiming that rightful. And he has paid for it. He's redeemed us by his blood. Um, one of the things is there a sense in which he has rescued us from a hole that was too deep for us to get out of. And drugs can be a little bit like that. Right? It's like you, get, you start getting into drugs and drugs can sort of lead you into a deeper and deeper and deeper hole until finally you can't actually get out of that hole by yourself. And that is in some ways what sin did for us as well. And what Satan, I mean what um, Satan was able to leverage and Jesus was able to rescue from, us from. Um, the other thing is, uh, is that Jesus, about the ascension, is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. So what does this mean? When we look at Steph, uh, Stephen, sorry, I was about to say Stephen, Stephen, well, I think is the normal pronunciation of, of that in the New Testament anyways, although we have a wonderful man, Stephen, here. Um, Stephen was martyred, and when he was being killed, he actually looked up into heaven and it said he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And we also know that um, James and John were trying to get their, you know, trying to get that position. They wanted that position at the right hand of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. And so, so that's what... That's what we see happening here is that Jesus is being ascended. He is going to the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He is interceding for us. It says that he is the high priest who lives to intercede for us. So he is pleading with the Father on our behalf. And he is saying, Father, I have paid for this people for their sins. I have paid it with my blood. So he is asking for mercy and he is asking for intercession. Um, the other thing he is doing as well is he is defending us against Satan's accusations. And uh, one of the things that uh, there was a man named in Zechariah 1.3, there was a man named a, high, a priest named Joshua. And Joshua, in this vision, Joshua walks in and he's got all these dirty clothes and they're covered with filth and all kinds of stuff on them. And he says, he, he sees Satan comes in and Satan is accusing Joshua and saying, you have no right to be in God's presence, essentially. But Satan is rebuked. And I think there's an aspect to which Satan is still the accuser. He still, he condemns us in our hearts, right? He condemns us before, before Jesus in the presence of God. And just a little bit like the way he did with Job, um, I think that Satan also defends us against Satan's accusations as well. And so he is at the right hand, says he is our advocate, and he speaks out for us. And that is part of where he went. That was where he was ascended to, was to the right hand of the Father. Um, one of the books that I received on the front steps of the church this week, um, by, it was by Peter Atkins. And in there he talks about, he says, one of the things about the ascension as well is that Jesus models 
humanity, right? He didn't just come here with a, and do a bunch of PowerPoints and give us a bunch of seminars and leave us with some uh, YouTube videos we could watch. He actually came here, he modeled being a human, and he actually went through the whole process, birth, death, resurrection, and ascension. And I think part of that is a real comfort to us because we realize that, hey, it's not some cosmic, we're not going to be, you know, like we die and suddenly we become part of this cosmic uh, being and we lose who we are and we're just suddenly one with the universe. But rather, we actually still retain our identity. We know our friends. Jesus came back after the resurrection. Jesus knew who his friends were. They knew who he was, right? And so there's this aspect where when we go to heaven, it's not going to be like I thought when I was a kid. I just thought that we were all going to be a bunch of sort of floating balls of light and just sort of, you know, hovering around like a bunch of fireflies. That's how I imagined heaven. But that is not the picture that Jesus gives us, right? Jesus gives us a picture with a physical body. He actually intentionally said to them, he said, look. Touch, touch my hand. You know, I, I'm not a ghost. He ate something to show them that he was not a ghost. And so I think that Jesus models this humanity. It's a comfort for us. Um, one of the things is uh, my dad um, passed away two weeks ago. And that's a time of loss. It's a time of grieving. It's a time of uh, tears. It's a time of where you, as a family, you, you talk about missing this person and saying goodbye. And the loss of feeling, I will never see him again on this earth. But there's a comfort in knowing that he has not just been subsumed into some cosmic being, but he is with Jesus. And he is still Alton Barsness, he is still himself, right? And we, I will see him. He will recognize me, I'll recognize him. And so that is a comfort. And I think that's the modeling that Jesus gave for us. Um, and we too will ascend. There, Jesus had an ascension. Jesus had a death. We will have a death, most, most likely. Um, and we will have a resurrection, right? It says that we will be resurrected. And we will all have an ascension. As well, because it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it says, And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And so there's this aspect, again, of the clouds, right? This one talks about, I find it interesting. In the Ascension, it talks about the clouds. In this verse, it talks about us meeting him in the clouds. Um, it uh, talks about when he returns, it's going to be in the clouds. So evidently, if it is forecast for pure sun today, you know, on any day, I guess, I guess that's, you're, you figure the Lord is not going to return that day because it really does mention the clouds a lot of times. So anyways, I'm not sure how theologically sound that is, but there we go. Um, so, so yes, that would be, I think those are those three things in terms of the, the part about Jesus going up, the ascension, we have his kingship, we have him standing at the right hand, and we have him modeling for us what death, the process of death is like for us as, as Christians. Um, number two is back. This word is just, again, it's just a very simple word, four letters. Jesus is coming back. And it says in verse 11, it says, This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And again, there's a lot of similarities, right? It says in the same way. 
You go up, he's going to come back. It's going to be, he went up in the clouds, he's coming back in the clouds. Um, some contrasts, right? He went up peacefully, in tranquility, in blessing, but he will return. There will be an aspect of returning with the sword, right? It says there will be a sword in his mouth. And again, we, in the Bible, we don't know. It talks, it talks about Jesus coming back to, to, for us to meet him, but it also says that he's going to be coming back to reclaim his rightful kingdom, and that will involve a war. And we don't know whether those two events are exactly at the same time or whether there's some space between them, but those are two aspects of his, his return. Um, one of the things it says here that um, in Revelation 1-7, it says, Every eye will see him. And so there's an aspect where this time when he ascended, only 11 people were there. Okay? Next time when he comes back, it's going to be everybody. Everybody will see him come back. And um, this verse as well, it starts out with these three words. This same Jesus. And again, there's that aspect of identity. He's not suddenly a different person. Jesus hasn't, you know, transmogrified into some cosmic being, okay? Um, he has, uh, I, was just, I just had to say it's a little bit longer than trifecta. Um, but anyways, <laughs> transmogrified. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but, but anyways, he has not changed into some being that we don't know. He will still be the same Jesus that they fished with that they that they ate roast fish on the beach with that they you know that they walked along these places with and so that's that's part of what um is being a comfort um the other thing here it says who has been taken from you into heaven and there is an aspect of sorrow right as christians we don't have to say oh it doesn't matter death is no big deal it doesn't matter when somebody dies as long as they're a believer we're we're good that's not true. There is an aspect of parting. There's an aspect of separation. There's an aspect where we grieve, right? But we don't grieve as those without hope. Um, it says here, we'll come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And he went up to be anointed as king. He comes back to rightfully claim his kingdom. Um, so the implications of this, I think, of Jesus coming back is that when we look at the news, when we hear about the war in Ukraine, when we, um, when we look at the, you know, the great Pacific plastic garbage patch, um, when we look at things like pollution, when we look at things like um, pandemics and all these things, um, we have, a, in some ways, we've made a mess. Not in some ways, but in most ways, we've made a mess of this world. And so that's something that we have to um, take into account. And it's, we just have to do all we can to model good stewardship on earth. Even though we have Jesus coming back, it doesn't mean that we just go, ah, you know, we don't have to do anything. We'll just, uh, we'll just let, it, let it ride. But, and wait till Jesus comes? No, we are asked to walk in justice, to walk in mercy, to walk with trying to see other people healed in many different ways. And that's what we're asked to do. We're not left abandoned here. I think that's another implication. We're not sitting here abandoned, but Jesus is coming back for us. Um, and also, too, it says in 1 John 3, 2, But we know when Christ appears, we shall see him. Um, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so there's also a hope and an expectation that we saw him one way with his glory sort of shaded to a degree. But when we come back, we will be able to experience him in his full glory, a little bit like the transfiguration, which, which, we, which uh, we, we uh, heard about um, in previous sermons. So that's another part of it. Um, number three, 
is the word on. And this is from the first part of verse 8, where it says, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And, um, and I think this is an aspect where, one, it is a promise of Jesus' coming back, right? Jesus says, I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit with you, and he will be like a guarantee that I'm coming back. He is like, he is like um, a promise that I'm coming back. He is a promise of, the, of our inheritance in Christ. And Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So there's also that promise that if you are a follower of Christ, um, the Holy Spirit has come on you. Right? So this was a one-time event in some ways at Pentecost, but in another sense, it, is a, it was the beginning of the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers. Before that, the Holy Spirit had just indwelt, it was more of a, sometimes he indwelt King David, sometimes he indwelt King Saul, sometimes he indwelt Samson. Right? But it wasn't a constant thing, and it wasn't with every believer, where now, starting at Pentecost, all believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit in them, the presence of God himself in us. And that is a real blessing and a real gift. Um, so the first words in this verse say, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So this aspect of receiving power, it's not something we earn, right? All of this is passive. Nothing in here says, go do this, go do that, go do this, in terms of receiving the Holy Spirit. It's a something that happens to us. It's a gift that's given to us. The Holy Spirit is God himself uh, allowing himself to come into, our, into, uh, into us. And um, it's entirely passive. The power is from God. Um, his Spirit comes on us. We don't sweat to get the Spirit. We don't earn. We don't try to earn it. There's not some badge that we have to get to get the Holy Spirit. It is just part of being part of God's family. And um, one of the things that we see in this as well, if we look at the last one is something for us to do, right? The last thing that Jesus said before he left was something for us to do. But um, this part is something that Jesus does for us and uh, we have the Holy Spirit with us. And one of the things, just as an example, uh, this sermon in some ways is a good example of just the fact that um, when like... Ruth and I had COVID for a week, like four weeks ago. And then, you know, for us anyways, the way it worked is we had COVID for a week. Then the next week, you're just, we were just exhausted. And then, then the week after that, my dad passed away and then we had the funeral. And so it's been like COVID was physically draining. Um, the process of losing your dad, it, for me, it was, it was emotionally draining. So it's like, you just, you feel like you're left with, you know, not much charge, not much, you know, up in the, in the, in the tank. And it's just like, like, um, for me, just my energy level and stuff, it wasn't, it wasn't at, it was certainly at a low, but then looking at this sermon and when you, so prepping the sermon, it wasn't like I had all kinds of oodles of overflowing energy to, to think about it with. And yet it was a great comfort in the sermon that it's not, it's not the power is about the Holy spirit, right? The power is in the word of God. The word of God isn't less sharp because I'm not feeling it, you know, at maximum energy or maximum, um, you know, alertness, um, the power is in the Holy Spirit and the power is in the Word of God. And that is something we can take as comfort from this passage. Um, 
one of the things that, you know, I talked about where the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of Christ's return. I think there's an aspect, and I'm not very good at this. Ruth, Ruth, is, really, Ruth is really good at keeping in touch with people when we say goodbye and we leave. I sometimes, when we leave, it's like, oh man, I just, you know, somehow I lose connection often with, with people. And I think the Holy Spirit is part of Jesus saying, hey, one of the Trinity is going to be actually, we are actually going to remain. One of the Trinity will remain with you. And we are not, it's not like Jesus is saying, so long, you know, see in 2,000 years. Um, it's, it's um, a fact is that an actual member of the Trinity is left with us and in us. And that's really encouraging. Um, now, the last part there, the last words were, uh, comes on you. And uh, I guess one of the questions I had was, is this, is this like, how is this different from possession? Like, does the Holy Spirit possess us? You know? No, Ken says, Ken says no. One of the elders says no. So I think that's, that must be the answer. So, um, and yeah, it's the, the possession is different. Satan often tries to imitate God. Satan tries to do the same kinds of things as God, but he, he does them in twisted ways. And possession is similar, right? Possession suppresses a person's personality. Possession makes you do stuff that you don't want to do. Possession, it's like you have no, you lose control of yourself. You, the, the boy that was possessed rolled around and then rolled into a fire, right? That that's not the way the Holy Spirit is indwells us. The Holy Spirit indwells us in a way that we actually become more ourselves, right? C.S. Lewis sort of talked about, he said that basically what happens when, when, when the Holy Spirit comes in you is that you actually, he cleans up all the parts of God's image that are covered with mud and dirt and crud. He takes that off and he actually makes us more the personality that God created us to be. Because his image now is able to shine even brighter in us, and we're more the person that we were, we're, we're actually become more ourselves. And uh, so, yeah, so that is, is part of, of just the Holy Spirit being in us. Um, and I think just in terms of application of that point is just that we need to recognize that how much we need the spirit to be who we are, how we need to connect with him consciously. We work with him. We work with God in his kingdom. And this allows us to be a channel of God's love. Right. There was one really great marriage book that Ruth and I read early on in our marriage by Lauren, uh, Larry Crabb. And it was just about that idea that in marriage, you do not have enough love to actually make it through through, uh, you know, decades of marriage. You just don't. And you actually, because what happens is if it's human love that marriage is based on, there's like, well, you didn't love me quite that much yesterday, so I'm going to down my love a little bit today. And then that was it. Well, now if you're going to do that, then I'm going to do this. You know, and it's sort of, it's a downward spiral. And in order for marriage to really in work, you need an influx of love. And that influx of love is from, from God. And uh, the Holy Spirit does that to us, where we don't maybe have the love to love people, but the Holy Spirit gives us the love to love people and, and have that influx of God's love and be a channel of his love. The final two letters in the sermon are two. Okay, so the word two is number four. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is uh, the last part of uh, verse eight. Um, and you will be my witnesses. Um, if you were listening to, to the um, video that Anatoly and uh, Dallas were having, the conversation they were having, Anatoly said, he said, and I saw with my own eyes what they were doing and making shelters and, and helping provide shelter for people whose, whose homes had been bombed out or shelled. 
And we even today, we have that idea where there is something about actually seeing it with your own eyes, right? When we see it on YouTube or whatever, we don't know, is this a deep fake? Is this something else? But when we see it with our own eyes, that's different. And I think that is what God is asking us to be witnesses. He's not asking us to be, um, you know, some people are called to talk about theology, but he's not asking most of us to talk about theology. He's asking us, most of us, just to say, hey, this is the experience of Christ in my life. Right, and that is what that is what I have seen. That is what I felt. That is the way Jesus has been with me through this really hard time. And it's very difficult for people to argue against your experience. They can't say, "Oh, you didn't experience that. You didn't feel that." No, I did feel that. That is what I felt. Um, and I know for myself, um, I I love ideas. You know, and I took a degree in philosophy, and and it's like I love to just sort of think about ideas and everything else. But the fact of the matter is, is ideas. I mean, I can any anybody here, I could you know argue for like four or five hours about ideas, and it's it's not so hard to knock down ideas sometimes, right? Um, and not that it's not useful for us to think about ideas as Christians, but I'm just saying that um, I think it's far more. Um, valuable for us to think about ourselves as witnesses and say, hey, this is what I've experienced with God. This is what I've experienced with Jesus. This is what I've experienced with the Spirit being in my, in my life. Um, now, we've got a few things here where it says, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I have a question and um, Amy got this question wrong in the first service. So I asked her to come back, listen to my sermon again, and see, see if she, I, I was going to give her another chance. So Amy, is there an or in, in this? No. no, thank you. Good job. You got it right. Okay. Yes, it is and, right? It is, it, is, um, it is all those places. It's not that we're supposed to be only in Jerusalem or not only in the ends of the earth, but we should be in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I think Jerusalem for us would be Saskatoon. Judea and Samaria are places that aren't so far. Judea is places that are sort of geographically not so far, like Canada and maybe culturally similar, similar language. Samaria would be places that are culturally a little different, so but not so far, right? So for us, it could be that, that if we were ministering to people, let's say, who are new Canadians, their culture would be different, but they would be geographically right, right here with us. Um, whereas the ends of the earth, to me, when I think of ends of the earth, I think of places where um, they do not have churches. They do not have Bibles in their language. Their chance of running into a Christian at work or in their life at any time is very, very low. And about one-third or a little bit over a quarter, 29% of the world actually is... Um, in that group. They are in that group of people that do not have Bibles. They do not have churches. They do not have, they're not, their chance of running into a Christian in their life is extremely low. Um, and like for Ruth and I, when we went to Mongolia, the, there was only two churches there, right? And uh, we've been to a couple countries where there's only two churches in the whole country. There's like 200 churches in Saskatoon, right? But these are places where there's only a very, very small amount. And um, I think one of the things for us to think about as Christians that when we're, when we're doing this, uh, this is our assignment that we're given. These are Jesus' last words to us, you know, and his last words were, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those were his last words to, to us 2,000 years ago. And so we just need to think, how are we doing at that? You know, and part of it is giving, 
right? Um, part of it is the funds that we give, and these are funds that are going to Ukraine. That they're a desperate situation. But what we have found, we lived in a war zone for four years. We have found that in those four years, people were far more open to talking about the gospel, um, to 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 um, just be able to have spiritual conversations than they were the years before when the war wasn't going on. And so now, even though it's a terrible thing, it's a terrible time for a church to be, it's also a time when, as a Christian, your light shines brighter because it's like, wow, how can you be... How can you be that way when there are bombs falling all over the place and shelling happening and it and it's uh, the, the the clarity with which someone who has the Holy Spirit in them is different is the differences just profound in those and so that is a that is a place where we can give our funds um, and that's important also Marie Enns will be coming in a couple weeks and she's going to be talking about her time in Cambodia right again that to me is also the the ends of the earth it's a place where there isn't as many churches as we have here um, and so and I think one of the things the, the startling kind of thing when you look at I'll give you two startling statistics one of them is that basically one out of out of every 1,800 Christians only one person actually become becomes a cross-cultural Christian worker. That's that's pretty low percentage, right? And um, then of those that of that very low percentage, actually only three percent of those actually go to that quarter of the world's population that has no Bibles, no churches, um, no chance really of meeting a Christian. So I think that is an imbalance that I feel like if we are going to complete the assignment that Jesus gave us that is an imbalance that we need to be really thinking about right how do we correct that imbalance what can we do to correct that imbalance in in focus um, because Jesus said um, he said that he will return once the gospel has been to every people and and in revelation it says and I saw I saw people from every tribe and tongue and nation right that means that in heaven, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Every, every ethnic group will be there. But if there are ethnic groups still remaining that have no Christians in them, how can that be the case, right? So there is an aspect where we want to go to the ends of the earth. So um, just as I conclude, I'll maybe ask the worship team to come up. Um, and because that was the question that I got wrong this morning in the first service. <laughs> um, and um, just how do we um, divide our resources, our money, um, our time, uh, our, our people, yeah, right? The body of Christ between these three, these, these different areas. Um, and... One of the things, too, to just think about, you know, our last, the last words that a person says before they leave us for, for a long time or for good are always important, right? And when Jesus was thinking about what are the last words I want to say to my disciples, these were the last words he said, right? So we need, I think we need to give them a lot of weight and we need to give them as if we were there, right? Because the disciples are the body of Christ. Uh, those of us here who are following Jesus, we are part of the body of Christ. So really, those were the last words that Jesus said to us. And that's what we need to um, keep in mind and think, how are we doing it, continuing to, to accomplish what Jesus asked us to do when he left?